0: Mm -hmm. Okay, hi everybody! Wow. Thank you for your patience. The Wi-Fi is very bad in this room sometimes. Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. Yeah, that's true. Uh, welcome. <laughs> My name is Nita Mamikunian. I'm the librarian for literature, theater, and dance at the UCSD Library. Thank you all for coming to the new writing series. We are thrilled to have Mira Jacob here to read for us to kick off our winter quarter series. Um, a couple quick housekeeping announcements. Uh, the restrooms and water fountains are located through that back, door. If you do need to leave the reading early before it ends, please use either the back door or whichever door is going to be least disruptive to the reading. Thank you. Um, I would also like everybody to please take out their cell phones and turn them off or silent. (laughs) The Wi-Fi is bad, but that doesn't mean that we won't get interrupted sometimes. (laughs) Um, So I'm also curator for the Archive for New Poetry, and uh, we are recording this reading, as we do all the New Writing Series readings for the archive, so that researchers and poetry and fiction lovers alike can listen to them um, from the comfort of their own homes. Uh, we are recording the reading, and so during the Q and A, we do have microphones that we will be passing around. So if you do have a question, please wait until we hand you a microphone, so that we can pick up your question um, on uh, for the recording. Um, I'd also like to announce the rest of the new writing series readings for the winter quarter. Um, On Wednesday, February 12th, 5 p.m., in this room, we're going to have Marcello Hernandez-Castillo read. On February 26th, again, 5 p.m., here in this room, Dimitri Kuzmin. And then on Wednesday, March 11th, we'll be having uh, Francisco Lovato and Anna Joyce Springer. Again, 5 p.m. in this room, all of those readings. So I hope we get to see all of you there as well. Um, and without further ado, I'm gonna bring up Professor Amelia Glazer, I believe. No, nope. I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Put you on the spot there, yeah. <laughs> yes,
1: okay. Um, Thank you, Nina. And um, I'm Amelia Glazer. I am a professor of literature. I also direct the Jewish Studies Program here at UC San Diego, um, which is a co-sponsor of this event, together with the new writing series. Um, Why the Jewish Studies Program, you might ask, uh, because Mira's most recent really wonderful book, Good Talk, um, deals in part with raising a child in Trump's America, whose background is Jewish and Indian. And what does that look like as a, um, a young American growing up since, well, earlier than 2016, but particularly since 2016. Um, the book, I will add, has been recently shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Um, it's about conversations between family, friends, parents, children, lovers that mean everything, even when it looks like a hard-won world of human decency is caving in. Mira's writing and her illustrations have appeared in the New York Times, Electric Literature, Tin House, Literary Hub, Guernica, Vogue, The Telegraph, and BuzzFeed. And she has recently wonderfully drawn a column in um, in Shonda. actually it wasn't that recent, was it? In Shondaland, which features the adult Mira returning to tell the child Mira not to give up writing and kind of keeps messing it up. Um, and I want to now attempt to cite from a drawn column, which is a strange thing to do. So Little Mira, I am going to write another book of poems because that's what real writers do. And I am a real writer. Big Mira, yes, 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 you are. Hold on to that. Little Mira. What do you mean? Big Mira. I just mean that, that thing that you're feeling, like right now, you are a real writer. Yes. Little Mira. Why would I not be a real writer? Big Mira. No, it's not that. It's just that the world won't want your stories for a while. So, little Mira, what's wrong with my stories? So, Mira Jacob is also the co-founder of Pete's reading series in Brooklyn, where she lives. She teaches at the New School and is also a founding faculty member of the MFA program at Randolph College. Mira Jacob's first novel, The Sleepwalkers' Guide to Dancing, which came out in 2014, was a Barnes & Noble Discover New Writers pick. It was shortlisted for India's Tata First Literature Award and longlisted for the Brooklyn Literary Eagles Prize. It was named one of the best books of 2014 by Kirkus Review, The Boston Globe, Goodreads, Bustle, and The Million, and the book, which which was beautifully crafted and a hilarious story of family love, um, was, you know, I found incredibly inspiring, and I want to cite my own review of the novel from when it first came out, if you'll forgive me. Um, is that allowed? Uh, even in the rapidly globalizing, this is me, uh, 20th century, <laughs> <laughs> some couple years ago, um, some departures are unidirectional. Jacob's most poignant moments find characters struggling to continue their relationships with deceased loved ones. Jacob's well-placed writing laced with a hint of magical realism lends sweetness to her heartbreaking descriptions of grief. Family members love and mourn one another in the future, present, and past tenses. They attempt to undo tragedy by reversing time in their minds and resort to superstitions in an effort to keep each other safe. Jacob's characters also see each other, sometimes blurred, sometimes in brutally vivid color, through a variety of prisms, in the flesh, through a window, through a camera lens, in an MRI scan, in a fantasy, in hallucinations. So I'll add that I've been an admirer of Mira Jacob for a very long time, long before her first novel came out six years ago, my first creative writing seminar at Oberlin College, I was a sophomore, um, this was longer ago than I was old at that time. Just let that sink in. Um, it, was a, it was a mashup of poetry, prose, and drama taught by the inimitable Diane Vruels. The pieces I wrote and workshop that semester were pretty forgettable. <laughs> Occasionally, my parents will find one, and they'll be like, do you want this? Um, though though I like to think that that class made me a more sensitive reader, made me more sensitive to language, but I do remember the work of one of my classmates, Mira Jacob, whose own experiments seemed to me at the time brilliantly paced, who was able even then to distill the emotion of a moment from her memory on her imagination um, and make it matter. I don't think that my past self would be surprised to know that I'd now be gushingly introducing Mira Jacob, the accomplished, award-winning author, to other hungry readers. So without further ado, I will hand the stage over to Mira Jacob. Thank you so much for being here.
2: That is just the... Hi. Hi, guys. Um, That is the nicest intro, and it's so nice to hear that because I know for sure... I definitely, so I wrote for about 20 years before I could um, really get my own work published in a significant way. So I definitely did not know at the time that we were in school that it was going to work out well at all. Um, Which I like to tell people all the time because I I feel like people think when you get to a point in your life where you're producing the work that you want to produce that you must have just like flown down some seamless path to get there and have been guided by the voices of angels and I just want to know it was like it was all self-doubt and worry um and trying really, really hard and until there was suddenly a breakthrough. Um and I make sure I say that a lot because I feel like when I was in your position and even when it was seven years ago or eight years ago, um I kept thinking that my time was up or that I should have been more something to to be the thing that I wanted to be. Um, which is my long way of saying you're probably doing great. Um, all right, I'm going to read you a little bit from this book. This is a drawn book of conversations, which is a super um, wild thing. If if you would have told me seven years ago that I was going to draw a book of conversations, I would have been like, that's cool, but I don't know how to draw, which is true. I didn't know how to draw even really about until about three years ago. And I started learning, I mean, I knew how to draw. I knew how to roughly make humans that looked like humans, but noses were always a real problem for me. Um, but I didn't know the way that I learned to, to draw all of, all of the me's and all of the many other people that you'll see in this book. I started doing it for a reason. Um, my son was, at that time he was six. He was super obsessed with Michael Jackson, like deeply obsessed. He had the hat, he had the glove. He kept calling himself the Six Jackson Um, and then he had all these questions about Michael Jackson and some of them were really funny. Like what happened to his other glove? Such a good question, right? Like what, what did happen to his other glove? Or is that how people really walk on the moon? Um, which also, by the way, I just want you to picture a moon full of people walking that way. Once he said, I was like, that would be amazing. Anyway. Um, and then some of them were like, uh, some of them, like once he asked me, um, I mean, is Michael Jackson, is he, is he brown or is he white? And I said, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'd given him all the albums, right? Like being like a, what I thought was a genius parent, I'd given him all the albums, not realizing, of course, that if you leave a kid who lands between, my, I'm this color, my husband is white, um, if you give that kid all of those albums, he goes back to his room and then he comes back with that question. What color is he? Is he brown or is he white? And, and I said, you know, the thing about Michael Jackson is he was... Um, he was, yeah, he was, he's brown, uh, and then he sort of, he turned white. And he goes, he turned white? And I was like, yeah. and he goes, are you going to turn white? And I was like, no. And he goes, am I going to turn white? And I was like, no. And he goes, daddy? And I was like, daddy's already white. And he goes, was he always? <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. Um but the, but the thing is, is that I, I was like, oh, no, I'm already messing this up. I'm already messing this up. You're six, and I've ruined you. And we know immediately that this is all going south from here. Um, and then the questions he asked, though, he said, um, so we were walking one day, and the protests for Ferguson were happening. And he said, what are they protesting? And, um, and I was sort of like, oh, well, yeah. And I tried to give him this sort of weird elliptical answer, but later... He saw it on television. He said, the the police killed a boy because he was brown, a kid named Ferguson. And I was like, mm. his name was Michael Brown. He was black. He lived in Ferguson. And he said, um, Ferguson's far, right? Ferguson's far away? And I said, yeah. But I saw the kind of wheels turning. And a couple of days later, we were on the subway. And just out of the blue... I don't know if anyone here has been on a New York subway. It's always just it's like a it's like a experiment of wild animals. Every car you get is a different thing. Anyway, we were on one of those cars where everyone's beats after work, seven like seven different kinds of sweaty. And um my son in his like sweet chirp goes, I mean, are are white people afraid of brown people? And it just <laughs> pierced through the subway, and everyone was like, uh. <laughs> and um and I froze because there was I'm asking this question and then there was this I just remember there's this like white hipster couple across from us that were like oh like that face I'm like we're so sorry and I was like yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a black woman next to me who goes mm-hmm. was like <laughs> there's this guy of indeterminate race and I always remember him because he was looking at me and I was like what is that look what does he need me to say is he judging me what do I say and I was like how do I satisfy all these people and I was like no you don't satisfy all these people you Talk to this little person. And then I did the thing where I was like, you talk to this little person, but what do you say? What do you say? Yes. Like, no, I don't want to say yes. But I also didn't want to lie to him. Because my parents came here. They were among the first um, wave of Indians to come in the diaspora. And they tried very hard to tell me all the time that there was no racism. Um, There was nothing really happening. The things that I thought were happening were probably not happening. Um, They never saw it. And I knew how weird that made me feel growing up when things were happening. And I didn't want to be that mom either. So what I ended up saying to our white people, afraid of brown people, is sometimes. And he said, well, how do you know? And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, how do you know which ones are afraid of you? And I was like, well, you don't always. And, you know, I'm sure in the next moment he probably, like, asked me for a juice pop, Didn't, like, think about it, but I... Went to bed, he went to bed that night, and I actually went to the bathroom and just was shaking. Because I felt like it was all ramping up, it was all sort of catching me. The questions were catching me. And then there's this other really complicated thing, which is that we're Indian, and my parents have taught me that no racism exists, but I know that racism exists well within my community, and what do we say about that, and how do I? tell you brown boy in a country that does not see brown boys how do I tell you who we are in this place where we don't even talk about ourselves all of this stuff and then um and then the next day he said um is daddy afraid of us and I was like oh god and I knew then I started writing this essay this essay that I thought was going to be like one of those great essays where you write all the questions down and you frame it and you send it off somewhere and then the world hates you. And the problem is when you write those essays is you get the comment section. Some of you may be familiar with the comment section. Um, and I started writing the essay that I would write, but all I could hear in my brain was the comment section. Like how many people would tell me that what was happening wasn't happening. How many people would say this child doesn't exist? Then they would say, well, I, you know what? I would believe in this story if she had used this other adverb. But because she used this adverb, I know she's full of shit. Just the ways in which people would take this thing that I knew was happening and turn it into something like a piñata for all of their doubt, because it's so much easier to make me into a piñata. And I'm actually used to being a piñata. I've been on a line, online for a long time. I've been writing for a long time. I'm used to people coming for me. I'm really not used to people coming for my kid. So then the next day I was just sort of sitting there and out of frustration I ran and I got this printer paper and I drew us, me and him. And then I ran to his room and I got all those Michael Jackson albums and I put them down on my dining room table and I started drawing our conversation in cartoon bubbles and I cut them out and I put them on top of the albums and I stood on the dining room table and just took pictures of the conversation, and then I cut them and sent them to my friend and said, I feel like this is a story. Is this a story? And he said, I'll run this. If you finish this, I'll run it. And so we ran it. The thing is about that piece, and that went up on BuzzFeed. Actually, and if you ever want to see how well I could draw at that point, you'll see, because that's that was like my, that was me doing my best, and we all, we both sort of look like weird totem pole people. Um, but that piece went up And it went viral in a pretty spectacular way. And it made me realize how many of us are in this moment where we have these questions and we also have a fear of our own curiosity and we are so scared to move. And sometimes it really is hard to move. Sometimes it's hard to stay curious and sometimes it's hard to keep asking questions. But it got me thinking about all the other questions I had carried in my life and all the other times that I'd had conversations. You know when you have those conversations and then you go to sleep and you wake up at two in the morning with like the perfect answer to the thing you should have said to be like the person in the movie that has the perfect answer. You know, those ones. Or or conversely, you wake up and you're like, oh, why did I say that? And it's like 20 years ago or seven and you're like, <laughs> not over it. So that was what this was going to be. This was going to be a book about those conversations. But what happened, and and some of them about identity, what happened in the moment that I was writing it, um, I pitched it in 2015. I was writing it through 2015 and 2016. And as 2016 ramped up, my in-laws, um, I've been in that family now for 20 years, uh, my in-laws became very avid Trump supporters. And um, it really changed our family dynamic a lot. Um, it became really hard to... I think I'd always had a space in my brain for we all kind of get this, we're all sort of coming from the same page it looks like this. I think there was a place that my hopefulness built a bridge between us that I realized very quickly was made entirely of only my hopefulness. It was pretty brutal. So I kept writing this book. And so that is um, part of what this book is too, is the story of my family and how, and how this last election um, really impacted us. I'm not reading to you from that section, though. What I'm reading to you from is um, a section that I think of as the Love Trilogy in here. So I'm going to read for a little bit, and then I'll give you a little time for questions. Yeah? Okay, cool. One thing you should know, you're going to hear me do Indian accents. This is an accent I had when I was growing up, and it's an accent I love. And if I read my parents without them, I basically feel like I'm lying to you. (laughs) Chapter 13, American Love. According to my parents, there were two basic kinds of marriage. Arranged marriage and love marriage. And then there was American love. Mom, if someone asked you to define arranged marriage, what would you say? Good. That's it? What? It's a good marriage. For Indians. Okay, now define love marriage. A marriage in which the two are not arranged. Aren't you forgetting something? No. <laughs> Guess you are. Indians. You're forgetting it's only for Indians. Fine, so what's American love? Passion, scandal, affairs, slinky outfits, Elizabeth Taylor, Dallas, the Morgans, the Parkers, the Lees. Now you're just shouting out names of friends who got divorced. (laughs) The McLaughlins, the Wilsons. My parents had theories on successful marriages, the problem with these Americans is they're always saying, you're not why married and getting divorced. Indians never do that. Why not? Because we never knew each other in the first place. <laughs> Lots of theories. When you have more in common, you have less to worry about. Not that who you marry is up to us. No, you do what you want. None of our business. I'm sure the mixed marriages can work sometimes too. But it's hard, I think, for the kids. In my early 20s, all of this lived in a pretty strange place in my head. The mating game. A friend of your great aunt's son, he loves long nights indoors, weekends at your parents' house, and staying married no matter what. Say hello to bachelor number one. Looking to blend seamlessly into America while feeling more alone than ever in your soul? Here's bachelor number two. Born there but raised here, this young man comes with just enough friction to keep things interesting, understands parts of you you thought no one ever would, and is rumored to exist. Bachelor number three, are you there? (laughs) Luckily, my brother had all the same issues I did, was equally committed to poor dating choices, and lived 15 minutes away from me in Seattle. One of us was always breaking up with someone or getting broken up with by someone. What happened? She sucks. (laughs) my brother had a type blonde, athletic, wrong for him I mostly remembered them by their undoings the one who didn't like his friends the one who who was competitive about everything he turned my exes into country western song titles he said I would understand if I were a real writer mopey poet, why'd you blow it (laughs) he told me beer for breakfast is normal He could have been your lover if he would have had a liver. (laughs) And then he tried to tell me they were mine. Those weren't your panties, but that was your heart. (laughs) The good thing about communal sibling heartache is that you get a certain kind of clarity. It's just that we're too kind and mature for everyone, and we we need to wait until they catch up to the very high level we're operating at. Should we fill the pain with pizza? Yes. And even when that clarity wears off, you still have your sibling. It's our parents' fault. Do you think they even love each other? Why would you ever make me think about that? (laughs) So when Arun became really excited about a new woman after hanging out a few times, it felt different. I mean, I think she's a... After a month, ha! Maybe it's the Indian thing. Wait, what? She's... Oh my God! You're going to ruin my life! What? What? You're already Mr. Perfect Likes Math and Science. Now you want to be Mr. Perfect Likes Math and Science and Indian Women? No! But I'm not trying to be perfect. Oh, shut up even more, Mr. Perfect. <laughs> I thought it wouldn't work out. Maybe it would go awry out of the blue, like it did with the one who suddenly went back to dating women. But then I met Lopa and saw how they shared some deep core values. One, were equally chill about tradition. Two, believed dogs are better than humans. Because they are. <laughs> Three, treated parents like well meaning interlopers from another planet. At the wedding, my parents wandered around like lost children from a fairy tale whose home had come and found them. <laughs> you look so happy. It's so wonderful. I can't believe it. What about you, Mira? You've met somebody? Nope. Don't wait too long. Nothing good comes of it. Yep. We think our hearts break only from the endings, the love gone, the room's empty, the future unhappening as we stand ready to step into it. But what about how they can shatter in the face of what is possible? You guys ready for the second one?
3: Yeah. All right, right. we're
2: in it now, we're in it. All right, chapter 16, Love Marriage. When I was growing up, my parents did not hug, they did not kiss, they did not even go to parties in the same car. Are you going to the Koshis tonight? You go, I'll meet you if I can. (laughs) The kids will be there until nine. Compared to some of my friends, I had nothing to complain about. I heard my mom tell my aunt she wants a divorce. My dad isn't living with us until he can get his act together. Mine just got married for the third time, like that's going to work out. My parents drive separate cars everywhere. But I knew there was something similarly sad underneath it all. Other people's parents fall in love, fall out of love, get divorced, seem lonely. My parents didn't fall in love, couldn't fall out of love, stay married, seem lonely. By college, I got used to it. You want to go to a movie with us? You go. I'll meet you after I get done with rounds. Okay. It was about that time that I realized a little space could be nice in a relationship. I thought we could maybe go see that band (laughs) at the lakeside and then see the Truman Show and then do our laundry and then get some brunch on Sunday or something.
3: (laughs) The first time
2: I saw my parents holding hands was at my brother's wedding. I thought maybe they just got nervous. But then a year later, I went home for a visit and saw my parents doing many new things. One, sitting abnormally close to each other at the kitchen table. What? Two, going places in the same car. So? (laughs) Three, giggling in the middle of the night. You guys! Okay, okay, calm down. Whatever that was in the kitchen. (laughs) The next day, I called my brother in a panic. It's like they Fallen in love? I mean, the other day I think I saw. What? They were kissing by the fridge. What? Don't tell me this stuff. You asked. Yeah, but I don't need to know. Oh my God, it's gonna be all of you. All of us what? You'll be team love marriage, and everyone will think I'm some black sheep, lone, reject, jealous weirdo, and I will be. I think you're having a seizure. The day before I left to go back to New York, I finally snapped. Okay, what is happening with you guys? Who? You and Dad. You're acting weirder than normal. Weird how? I don't know. Holding hands. When did we hold hands? Months ago. <laughs> Philip, is upset because we held hands months ago. <laughs> Quick, give me your hand. Let's make her upset now.
3: <laughs>
2: how had my arranged marriage parents fallen in love into a love marriage? What was next? American love? Back in New York, it was hard to explain why it made me so nervous. I don't know. I wouldn't mind having my parents fall in love. You don't understand. They don't do falling in love. It's like genetic or something, if you say so. But I knew what I was really worried about. Team love marriage. Mom, Dad, Arun. Team alone, me. All right, guys. We got one more. You can we do one more? All right. Okay. All right. Chapter nineteen, the neuropsychologist. The whole thing started with a phone call from my father in nineteen ninety nine. Amy Mow, guess what? My friend's son is a neuropsychologist up at Columbia University in New York. Huh. So maybe you'd like to meet him. What? Maybe you two would have some things in common. Dad, seriously, why not? (laughs) I was living in Williamsburg where the rents were still low and you could see all of glittering Manhattan if you walked down to the East River. Nobody walked down to the East River. (laughs) Columbia's, like, super far away, Dad. No harm in just meeting. It's not like you have some big decision to make. I don't know. He's a nice kid, says his dad. And it's not like you've been doing so well on your own. My dad was right. (laughs) (laughs) Months earlier, in a fit of clarity, I had broken up with a nice-but-wrong-for-me boyfriend. Nothing had been particularly clear since. Mom and I have been worried. You seem strange lately. Because breaking up with nice people makes you strange. And you should have children before it's too late. I think it's a great idea. Jesus, Mom, how long have you been there? (laughs) He's a neuropsychologist, he's your age, and he grew up in America. You two have so many things in common. The neuropsychology alone. (laughs) I told them I would think about it. I walked around Williamsburg trying not to think about it. When I got home, there was an email from my favorite great aunt in India. My dear Mira, why is it that all of our best and brightest run off to America and marry these American nobodies? What kind of country is it where children listen to other children about who to spend the rest of their lives with, but never their parents? You've always been such a bright thing. Surely you're smarter. Sarah Kuchma. Dear Sarah Kuchma, nice try. I'm not doing it. You're still my favorite Kuchma, though. Love, Mira. The next day, my great uncle, bedridden with cancer, called. <laughs> Mira. Maul, listen, just meet with him, just one time. It's a small, small thing to do for all of us who want to see you happy, please. Can't I just do some other small, small thing for you? And then I will know you're taken care of before I go. Christ. I can't hear you said yes. I told myself I was doing it because of the breakup. And for my great-uncle. And because my brother had fallen in love with an Indian woman. And because my parents had fallen in love with each other. But really, it was simpler than that. I did it because it felt really right. Taking a step toward what you've always wanted right. We don't have to explain ourselves because we just know right. Our children will never doubt their place in this world right. After we hung up, I lay in bed and whispered, My husband... The neuropsychologist. It felt weird. I imagined our children. It felt less weird. I went to the bar downstairs, watched a bluegrass band, and hooked up with the lead singer in an alley afterward. <laughs> my place. Sure. It felt medium weird. <laughs> Over the next few days, the phone rang all the time. It's a very good idea. Should have done it long ago. It's my grandmother. I told them you would grow up and come to your senses. But now you've gone and done it, everyone here is too excited. I called my brother. This is insane. All of India has called me in the last 72 hours. You're the one who said you'd do it. Oh, whatever, perfect son. I can't believe you agreed. It's like you've been taken over by aliens. I haven't agreed to anything but a phone call. How does this work again? How it worked. One, my dad gave me, my dad called the next morning to give me the neuropsychologist's number. No biggie. Just a casual, hello, I'm the daughter of Philip Jacob. Perhaps you would like to meet me sometime in a casual dinner in a public spot. (laughs) (laughs) Dad. Two, I called. Hey, this is Mira. My dad is a friend of your dad's. I hear you're up at Columbia. I'm down in Williamsburg. Anyway, um, let me know if you want to get a coffee or a drink sometime. Would love to meet up. 3. I lay on the couch, stared up at the ceiling, and waited for my real life to begin. 9 a.m. So? What? You talked? I left a message. Okay, good, so now we wait. Thanks, wasn't clear on that. 10 a.m. So? Ma, you guys just called me. I didn't call. Dad called. What did you tell him? Why don't you just ask him? Because I'm talking to you. (laughs) 6 p.m. So? I called him this morning. It's now the evening. He will call tomorrow or in a few days. He didn't call you back since morning? You guys, this is how American dating works. Calm down. At the bar, the vibe was off. Let me get you a drink. I'm all good. Thanks. You're from India, right? Just kind of want to sit here and think. Thanks. (laughs) Think in your own apartment. I went back upstairs. No one had called. I went to bed. That night, I dreamed I was chasing a small brown boy across the lawn, but I wasn't sure if he was mine or someone else's. Day two, 9.30 a.m. Well, Dad, I promise I'll tell you if he calls. Okay, we're all just waiting. Okay. <laughs> Listen, who knows about this guy okay? What do you mean? I mean, could be some madness in the family or something. You never know. She's right. Who knows what he was really like? Seriously? You guys don't want to give him a few days or something? (laughs) No one, it turned out, wanted to give the neuropsychologist a few days. (laughs) Back to dating useless Americans, is it? So? You're not good enough for him? So what? Good riddance. But why did you call him? That is much too forward. (laughs) Dear Mira, well, you can't always tell from afar how these boys were raised you probably escaped a dismal life with that psychoneurologist. His loss, Sarah Kutchma. Dear Sarah Kutchma, I'm fine. Don't worry. This is hardly the worst thing that's happened to me. I've been dating in New York for years, remember? Love, Mira. It wasn't until a full week later that I finally understood the neuropsychologist really wasn't going to call. And then I felt stupid. Stupid for calling... Stupid for pretending I was the kind of person who could be happy in an arranged marriage, except I hadn't really been pretending, had I? So stupid for that, too. I mean, he's probably some totally normal Indian guy with an American girlfriend he's been seeing for seven years that his parents don't even know about. That's normal? What? (laughs) That winter was like every winter in New York. Too cold, too long. I bought myself a membership to the gym so I could watch television while I ran. I went on a few strange dates. My mother took a trip to India and came back with the news. So I heard about what happened with the neuropsychologist. He fell into a black hole and couldn't call back to say, sorry, your parents put you up to this. I'm just not into it. No reflection on you. It's just that his aunt talked to your aunt and said, we've heard she's very plain. Is that true? And your aunt said, well, sure, she's no beauty, but she's a really nice girl. And wait, what? Because you're not fair, right? So then they didn't want you. But that's all. That's all? Oh, Mir. You know how important color is to some silly people. I mean, you're never going to be someone's trophy wife, right? If that's what they wanted, then it was a mismatch. That's all I'm saying. I thought you'd feel better knowing it was such a dumb thing. These people and their small ideas. Prove to them. Anyway, you look like me. That's not so bad, is it? It's not true. Of course it is. People say it all the You're not dark. That's not dark. Rin's not dark. Come on. You think you're so different from us? You're not so different from us. Why was this the thing that made me want to cry the most? I gotta go. That night, I wanted to call someone to meet me. Someone who would get it. Really get it. But there was no one to call. Anyone sitting here? Thanks. Um thank you. All right, so that's the love trilogy. There's a lot of other conversations in the book. Um but I wanted to can we open it up to questions? Is that is that cool? Do you guys have any questions for me?
1: I'll give it a second.
2: I will literally answer any question. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear more about your process grappling with the visual aspect of the
2: work. Yeah, sure. Um, Okay, so I told you I didn't really know how to draw. um, And at first I was like, oh, all I have to do is trace everything. I'll just trace everything. But here's a really wild thing that I didn't know. When you trace drawings, they look a specific kind of dead. (laughs) And um, and I I started doing it that way and I was like, oh no, this is not going to work. And then I ended up finding this weird... Thing out about myself, which is that if I looked at the drawing and first I traced it and then I erased it and then I redrew it from memory, it would look alive because my memory is faulty and it would put things in a way that looked more alive. And that was my weird hack for being able to draw things the way I needed them drawn, but also keep the personality in them. There was also a lot of rules that I had for myself in this, um, like. Um, those expressions could never change. You guys saw that the expressions never change on the characters. I did that for a particular reason. Um, I knew the bodies couldn't change position once I had them in the work. I knew that certain characters were, you know, going to have to repeat um, and not as the characters they had been before I had. And I knew that it all had to be I couldn't, when I first wrote the book, especially the first pass, I didn't write down a single feeling I had. So you guys saw the parts that were like, sometimes, and it's usually like, um, it's a feeling, or like, you know, the, it's sort of the way that you'll see like a block of white text on a background, and it's, a, and it's an internal thought. None of that was in it at first. And I can tell you actually why that happened. So I told you guys I drew things in a certain way. Um, and my editor, when he first saw, when he first saw the book, he was like, it's really weird. This is not the editor who ended up doing the entire book with me, but my first editor said, you know, it's really weird that the expressions never change. I feel really uncomfortable about that. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you know, I just I wish you could make like a cry face or a consternation face. I wish you could just make some of the, maybe just make a couple emotions. And I was like, no. Um, And he said, why? And I was like, because I don't, if I would have been able to make the right sense at the time, what I would have said was, I don't want to have to do that work for you. I'm so fucking tired of having to do that work for you. I'm so tired of having to cry for you. I'm so tired of you having to see my tears so that you can decide whether or not they're real. I'm so tired of that. I didn't say that because I didn't know that that's what it was, but I knew instinctually. I was like, no, I just don't want to. I don't want to do the emotions. And and I said, what happens to you when you read it? And I'm not crying. He so, said, well, then it just makes me feel really weird. And I was like, I'm down with that. Mm-hmm. Great. You hold on to it for me. You hold on to the emotions because I can't bear to. I think also. Part of the reason I couldn't write those essays is because every time I tried, it wasn't just it wasn't just the idea of like who's gonna come for me online. It was also just the fatigue I had at that point about talking about this stuff. Like it was so real and it was so totalizing. Like I felt like it was gonna annihilate me, the fatigue. And so being able to do this, being able to draw it instead, I was like, oh, if I do this, they can't say I don't believe her because of that adverb. Like They're going to see the conversation. And it was almost like I was like, I dare you to look away from the conversation. I'm going to make something that's so easy to read that I dare you to look away. And so I kind of went in every day with that fire of like, how am I going to make a thing that looks and how am I going to what are the rules of this world? And what are the rules that and how do you make a visual language? And honestly, that was like the most alive feeling, like creating a visual language. And knowing, and I was like, I don't, I, I didn't have other books that I was looking at to do this one. Um, people always ask me, like, what other books did you study to make this work? And I, and I didn't. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't a million other works that do similar things or are really interesting. I just didn't want to copy anyone else's. Um, I didn't want to study things and also freak myself out. I knew that was a very high likelihood, frankly, of freaking myself out and telling myself that I wasn't going to be able to make this. And I was like, no, just stay in the bubble, stay in the cocoon. You can totally do this. It's great. It's great. Um, <laughs> And so that's what my, that's a lot of my process was sort of figuring it out. The other thing is, I'll tell you that if I would have known from the start, like, okay, to do this book, you're going to learn Illustrator and Photoshop and InDesign, and you're going to hire, a, you're going to hire this guy, he calls himself the book doula to help you with the parts of it that you just can't understand anyway. And you're going to like to have five of your friends running around New Mexico with cameras and you're going to figure out how to source pictures and you're going to blah, 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 blah. Like I would have absolutely combusted on the spot. I just said do the thing at hand. And so like sometimes the thing was learn to draw noses and that was just like 3 weeks of of me going to bed actually watching these videos that are called Tasty Toots on YouTube. <laughs> and they show you how to draw things and my husband was like, "Really? That's the This is where we are now. You're like watching drawing videos in bed." I'm like, "This is sexy time, buddy." Like this I mean it was like it was really but it was like that thing where you feel really nourished. Um, because you're learning something new, you guys are all in this place where you're learning something new. So I guess it's not that exciting for you. But when you get when you're when you get hardened in the world, and people don't ask that of you anymore, um, they ask it less of you, and they ask it in less dynamic ways. It feels really exciting to have to learn a bunch of stuff, and it frankly felt way better than freaking out about Trump. Yes.
3: So this is a book of, uh, as it says, title, memoir and conversations. Mm-hmm. Throughout a person's life, a person has lots of conversations. Yeah. How did you decide which ones to put in the book?
2: Great question. Okay. So originally when I wrote this, so I pitched it in 2015 and I thought it was going to be, I really thought it was going to be like a hilarious book. I can't tell you, the book that I was going to write was so much funnier than this, to be honest. Like I was like, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to be hilarious. Um, and because the convers because I... When I pitched it, I thought America was going to skate very close to a disaster and avoid it. Um, And I think I just had a lot of illusions about the country that we were in. It was a funnier country. Um, So when I originally wrote it, I wrote probably like 85 conversations. And then I had to go back. And and what happened was as my in-laws became Trump supporters and as that started wearing into our family, a lot of them became filtered through the lens of what did I learn about myself when? In America, like when did my heart get this knowledge? When did I when did I start feeling this torn? How did where, what what did all of those look like? So a lot of them fell out after I kind of put that lens on it. Um, some of them I really loved, and will like never see the light of day. But I have them. I just have them for myself, like these tiny little jewels that I think of. Um, and and all of them to me, it was all in service of this story. It's like how do I tell? This thing that both radiates in a million directions but keeps a core that's strong enough to tell a kind of singular story. Does that answer your question? Cool. Hi. Hi. Um, so you mentioned fatigue a little bit earlier. Yes. And- Um, so I wrecked my back. <laughs> um, I was—I had a friend actually write this beautiful thing up. I was working in a um, in a studio without any heat and wearing two hats and fingerless gloves and coats, um, mini coats, and I was working from about eight in the morning to about one in the morning. Didn't do that well in the self care. Just gonna be just gonna be clear about that. Wasn't doing the well in the self care in that moment, but the things that I did do for self care was I talked to. I have a really strong core of friends. Um, and they would go for walks with me. Um, a lot of this was really dicey. It was really hard for my marriage, um, because I was writing about my in-laws and at some point it became clear that I was going to do that. And my husband's really private. We went on a lot of walks and then I just like, mostly I just spent a lot of time with my kids so I could remember that there was a side to this, like having a six-year-old just sort of like being in charge of a benevolent alien, you <laughs> know, just like the questions are just like, what and so there's something actually really refreshing about that, um, that is, that works in opposition to the part of me that felt most hardened, um, but ever since I, like, honestly, now I like go to weightlifting class and run a lot, I'm just sort of taking care of myself in reverse, um, but I didn't do a great job at the time, which is to say, also self care can start at any time. <laughs> Patterns can change. <laughs> what else? Um, hi, can
3: I ask a question real quick? Um, yeah, I am taking a nonfiction writing class right now, and I am. This is the first time I ever tried writing nonfiction. It's kind of scary to me because mm-hmm. when I try to write. much details I've filled in and maybe imagined, and um, I think this book is such a like clever way of telling the truth, and I loved the, like, the, like, say hello to The Bachelor moments, um, while it's all, like, so, it's, like, hard truth, and so I just wondered uh, your a, a perspective of the role of imagination in nonfiction writing.
2: Yeah, such a good, that's such a great, um, that's such a great question. Actually, somebody explain this. The other day I was at a talk and somebody was talking about how um, memoir, if you only look at the facts in memoir, if you're only reporting the facts, then you're reporting a dead happening. Right? There's no way to make that moving. The job of a memoirist is actually to imagine into what you couldn't see at the moment. To imagine around the bends of that. And I, I write memoir and fiction, and so I know that they're, they're in fact very different muscles that do that work, but imagination is the space between. For me, imagination, when it has to do with memoir, has to do with allowing a level of vulnerability and a level of openness toward what could have been happening in that moment, right? Like, and it has a lot to do with the stance that you take in in relationship to the other characters in your story. So for example, the way that that meets out in real time is a lot of this book, I was really hurt by what my in-laws did. I was really hurt by trying to talk to them and having them just sort of deny it and deny it and deny it. There There was a way I could have written them where I made them the receptacles of that kind of hurt, where I built them in opposition to my hurt. I built them to reflect that hurt. But every time I wrote about them, I would ask myself, are you writing this for vindication or are you writing this for clarity? Clarity is an act of imagination. Right? Clarity is looking around the bends. If you're writing it for vindication, if I was writing it for vindication, i just put it away. I would write the scene. I would feel great about it. I would imagine being like, "Ah, ah, ah," you know, like (laughs) holding it up like a bloody head. And then I would fold it and put it away and say, not this one, world. Not this one, because this is my family. My son's going to read this book. And he loves those grandparents, and I love them too. Right. So like that to me is the the part of imagination has very much to do with with this with imagining how real and true and full the lives outside you are outside your own narrow view can be. Does That make sense. Cool. Wow. So many questions. I mean, anyone who's uh, who's got the mic. Yeah. Great. Yep.
0: a little bit more about the vulnerability that you shared and like, you know, the level that this is um, so personal. Like, thank you for sharing, by the way. Yeah. Um, I was wondering what your advice is, like, for for when you're writing something that's really, really personal. Yeah. And you're going to put this out in the world and you have to listen to other people's thoughts about your own story. Like, even before, you know, you had it published, you know, listening to other people's feedback from their suggestions on how to tell your story differently. Mm-hmm. How, did, how did you
2: deal with that? Was it hard to accept feedback? Like what, what was your process in that? I have a really wild story about that. So the first um, the, the, when I first wrote this book, I wrote it as scripts first before I drew it because I didn't know how to draw it. So I wrote it as a bunch of scripts um, and as I was doing that, my first writing group, I was sort of um, brought into a writing group that was brand new. I didn't know very many people in it I gave it to them um, before the 2016 election in October. We met two weeks after the election. Really wild time to have people reading this book. And when we met, um, at first the comments were kind of like, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's like this whole identity politics thing. Like when you keep playing to that, it kind of, it just, you know, it's like after a while it's like, okay, what? Then it went to, I mean, what's really so bad for you? Like nothing. Then it went to... You're the kind of person that divides America. The reason that we are where we are is because of the kind of work that you do. Um, It was really savage. It was intense. And the weirder part is when I um, suggested to that group, I mean, I just listened as I am trained to do in workshops, and this was like writing notes down and... And they got more and more heated and said things like, you know, I'm Jewish, and I don't feel as attacked by this world as you do, and I've got plenty of things. You know, it was that kind of thing where it was like, okay, I don't what's what's happening right now? What is happening right now? When that happened, and then after when I peeled out of that group and I said, hey, guys, I think it would really help me. It was four white people, one other person of color. I think it would be great if we got a couple other people of color in here because I feel like you guys see this book in one way, and I get that, but also I'm, I'm writing for an audience that looks a lot like me or who is interested in people like me. And it would be helpful if we had some of those voices in the room and they're like, well, we've got, we we care about good writing first. And I was like, are we pretending that those things don't exist? Are we pretending that good writers of color don't exist? The wildest thing about this is that I was the most published writer in the room and they were still saying that to me. It was a crazy shit show, which is to tell you that was painful. And I remember calling my agent and being like, they just told me that this book is ruining America and this is what happened. This is why America's the way. And she was like, okay, hold on. <laughs> um, but I had a moment with it and I turned to a good friend of mine, the writer, Alex Chi, Alexander Chi. Um, and he's been like a mentor and a, and a real love for many of us in the industry. And I said, Chi, this thing is happening in this group. And he was sort of advising me through it. And then I... Um, you know, I was like, I just need a writing group. And he said, you know, I, I just, I need a writing group too. And I was like, what? Like what? Cause I've admired his writing for decades. And I was like, wait, what do you, what? Mm, mm. And I was like, I'm sorry, wait, if you, um, when you say you need a writing group, do you want to, do you want to join the, um, the racist group that I'm in or would you, what if I made a, a dream group? If I made this dream group of dream people with dream writing, would you want to be? And he's like, who would be in the dream group. And I'd listed off all of these writers that I knew lived in New York. I knew some of them personally, and I didn't know some of them personally, but I'd been following their work for a long time. And I was terrified of them. And I was like, it'd be this person and this other scary person and this other. And he said, I would join that group. And I was like, yes. And so then I wrote to all of those people. And I said, hi, I'm starting a writing group. It would be me and you and this person and this person and this person. I know you don't probably all don't know each other. I also don't know all of you. I have followed your work. I would really like to be in this space. And what's really interesting is they took this same book and it wasn't that the book was perfect at all. They had many of the same issues. Not me but but the issues were actually about the craft of it. So the issues were, I think you wrote this part for vindication and not clarity. Why? What else is there? What does it look like to imagine the wholeness of this person? What does it look like to look around the bend there? Why? The last letter in this book is a letter to my son. I wrote it 27 times, and the first 26 were about the angriest thing you had ever seen. They were the ones that stopped me and said, why would you write this angry letter to your son? Is that really what you would write to him? And I was like, oh, God, no. You know, so, and apparently my internal voice sounds like my mother. Anyway, um... (laughs) So they, like, peeled me back from that place. So that's one one thing. That's the question of when you're making the work. When you're making the work, I say I think you have to surround people that you are terrified by creatively but believe absolutely solidly in who they are as people in the world and the kind of writing they're putting into the world the kind of work they're doing in the world. Um, I handpicked that group, and it was a lifesaver. And every time we meet, I feel... Pretty amazing about it. Um, the other group burst into flames. No, I don't know what happened to those people. Um, okay, now if you're talking about putting your writing out into the work and criticism about that, I saw somebody the other day had written um, some thing. I don't know why people ever tag you on Twitter when they write shit about you, but it was basically like Mary Jacobs a jerk and her husband's a jerk and her kids a jerk. You know, it was like that thing where I was like, okay, this is what. That stuff, I have no problem with being like, block, erase, done, like, stay, stay away. I don't, by the way, if you're ever criticizing a writer, you'd never need to CC them on Twitter. That's a very weird, passive-aggressive, shitty thing to do. Don't do it. You don't, they don't owe it to you to listen to your opinion. They just don't. Um, I, th- I think when people are doing the work and making the art, I will engage with them. Um, if they are trying to have a conversation in faith, and with integrity, and if they're questions, if they if they come from a place of questioning, I can usually find a way to engage with them, even if we're in very different political stances. But I have no problem with walking away from people that I know don't really want to have a conversation with me, that they want to use me as some sort of pinata. I have no problem with being like, ah, don't, no, you don't need to do this. And I think it's okay to do that. It's okay to protect your work that way. Yeah, yeah. What else? Oh, me pick? Okay. Um this person has been waiting too. Hello. Hello. So much.
0: Yeah. Um I had a question about capturing voice, which is a great segue since you're talking about your inside voice. Um, considering these are conversations and you're going interstep of in not only just writing the conversations, but also when you perform them, like they all have these clear personalities yeah. and like
2: Well, all the voices really just sort of live in me, and that's weird, and that's true. Like, I hear them. I hear the voices of my family so clearly. They are, like, in, you know, they're, like, tattooed in my brain. This person's, like, oh, my God, she's really mental. I know, I am. I'm fully mental. Um, But I hear those really clearly. Also, with my fiction, though, like, those weren't real people, and I heard them talking to me all day long. The voice is the one thing that I can tap into. And it's very, it's very solid and it feels very real. And most of the time when I hear it, I'm like, good thing I'm a writer for a living. because um, <laughs> I don't know what I, how I would channel it another way. And I also just really latch on to words and how people, how people say things. I love the differences in the way that people express things. I find so much love between those gaps. Yeah, who else? Um, the, this person in the back with the glasses.
1: When you were, I was wondering if you viewed yourself
3: any differently when you were participatory, like, character in the novel versus when you were a narrator
1: for everyone else in the novel. Say it again. I was wondering if you viewed, like, your own character in the novel differently from, like, your narrations and observations about
2: it. Right, so you mean, in, like, when I wrote the emotional part versus when I was writing the dialogue for the character, that thing? Yeah, like,
1: if you're...
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, absolutely, because the text at the top required me to go back and think about. So when I first did it, I was like, this this book, the rules of this book are you never explain how you feel. You only do it in dialogue. You are never allowed to use a metaphor. Like I had all these like crazy. I was like, you will get out of this box. Houdini, like, I don't know. Anyway, it was a whole thing. It was like a whole jam that I was like, this will work. Um, And then my editor was like, I don't know what you're feeling. And I was like, God damn you. Um, So, yeah, it was different work. To like go in and sit in the long moment, to sit in the sometimes place. Sometimes it happens like this. Sometimes it happens like that. And to be quiet that way, it was just another like it's the same basic person just like a rung down um, into me. But I think in terms of character, there was a lot of times where like I, I realized pretty early on, I was like, oh, you better you better like own up to your bullshit pretty quickly, or this book is going to be tedious. And so that was, and, and like, I thought that, and the rest of me was like, no, nah, no, nah, you don't have to do that. I was like, yeah, you do. And then there was, like, there are a couple conversations in here that are really harrowing um, that I had around race where I, where I said some really horrible things um, and putting those into the book were hard, but you know, what was even harder was knowing, and I know this very clearly. I just want to say it right now when it happens, you guys can be like, oh, she did know it. Um, there are conversations in here that in a year, two years, three years, people are going to be like, Mary Jacob is an asshole. Here's the proof. And this is the textual proof of that moment. How did she not know this? And that's, that's gonna happen. And in fact, that's probably gonna be a great sign if it does. Because that means we're gonna have grown past this point. But I had to, at some point, I had to let go of the idea that I was gonna leave this book a hero. Because I'm not. At some point, somebody's gonna be able to look at all my biases and all the things I didn't even know were in here. And they're gonna be able to say, this jerk was a jerk. And I'm gonna have to be like, yes, jerk human, here. And that was, you know, like getting cool with that was a lot.
0: you talked earlier about writing from vindication and clarity when you refer to your in-laws yeah and I was just wondering how they took Mm -hmm. this book when it came out only if you want to share because I know that is personal yeah um but like how did that affect you um and if it affected you like deeply how did you heal from it or are you still healing from it
2: okay so that's really yes that's a lot Um, but, um, I'll tell you what, so when I, when I wrote the book, I gave it to them in galleys. Um, and I said, you can, you know, I hope you see the love in here. I also knew how many things I hadn't written down. I knew how many kind of easy, low hanging fruit things I had avoided and how many times I had gone through it and just cut lines, cut them and cut them, um, until it really left the bones of the rift. So I felt pretty solid about what I sent them. I also knew it was going to hurt. Um, and my mother-in-law called me up and said, um, well, dear, we read the book and you're very talented. We didn't know you could draw. And I was like, yeah, me neither. Um, (laughs) and then she said, um, you know, we're not ready to talk about this. And here's what's really wild about that. When I was writing the book, part of the reason I was writing it was because when I would be at their house before the election, there were a lot of terrible things that happened. Afterward, they would thank me for not speaking. I would be there for Thanksgiving dinner, another dinner, and they would, they would be like, you know, this little thing, that little thing, these little, little kind of um, things that felt like they weren't, they weren't talking about it either. They were making a point not to talk about it. But the great thing about that, when you've got the power and you can use it, is that it really benefits you not to talk about it. Because if you don't have to talk about it, you don't have to look at how you broke the person who you call your daughter's heart. You don't have to look at your grandson and explain to him why you made the world less safe for him. If you just don't talk about it, you can pretend you didn't. You can pretend that your love is bigger than your racist actions. So when she said that, when I originally was writing the book, I thought I was writing it to say all the things that I hadn't said. And that was why it sort of came out in a flood. I was like, I'm writing all the conversations that you don't want to hear about, all the things. And also, but part of that was really informed by this idea of like, maybe you didn't know me this whole time. Maybe this hope bridge that I built between us was me thinking that you knew me. And maybe you just didn't know me. And maybe if you know me and you know what my family has been through and you know how it's been for us, maybe you'll see why this is so important to me. And I wrote the book coming from that place. But the weird thing is, is that in the middle of it, I... I knew that I was starting to write toward the comment section. I knew I was starting to write for the disbelievers. They are the disbelievers. And I was like, don't write to those people. Because I had an idea that there was an us. Like, I had an idea that even though I couldn't find us, that there were a lot more people like me who looked like some version of me, who, externally or not, whose lives had been fractured in some way that didn't make sense to them, were walking around feeling wounded and fucked and I was like what if you write to them what if you just write to them so by the time I was making the trajectory in the book like this crazy emotional trajectory by the time I was sort of landing it I was writing it for you I was not writing it for them and so when my mother-in-law turned to me and said like I was like said we're not ready to talk about it." I was like yeah I guess I don't I don't yeah and I was like of course And we both kind of, I think she was surprised and I was surprised too. And she's like, oh, well, okay. And I was like, okay. And she said, well, we're not sure when we will be. And I was like, you never have to be. And she said, well, we love you. And I was like, yeah, I love you too. And that's where it stayed. And I should also say my father-in-law died last month. So, you know, like, it's been a, it's been a whole, it's been a lot of feelings. We've had a lot of, a lot of feelings to process. Um, But here's the thing, is that they're not monsters. Like, it would be so easy if they were. It would be so easy to say, this is the monster, and this is the thing that I disown, and this is why I don't love you anymore. The hard part is, they do monstrous things, and I love them very much. And they love me very much. And that's the hardest part to sit with is what that love looks like and how to live through it without letting it deform you. What else? I just depressed the shit out of everyone. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh my God, I gotta go live through something. Yeah. <laughs> sorry guys
3: I don't know I'm I'm looking at these um, these lines of potential transgression in your writing Um, especially in the era of Trump and how does all this self-censorship and writing around and behind and evading these lines of transgression versus Saying out loud what you're seeing and feeling in the style, for example, I come from a different generation when people said things very plainly and clearly in the 60s and today, and especially now after 2016, the the censor, the self-censorship that I see um, skirting around with non fiction, right, to say things that maybe need to be said out loud and straightforward. I don't know, I'm trying to see if you have a take on those, the historical differences between how race was treated, let's say, in the 1960s versus how race in the era of Trump is being dealt with and how it's affecting nonfiction, and I'm seeing kind of that here.
2: I think I'm not understanding the part about, like, what you would say, like, give me an example of what you would say versus what isn't said.
3: Yeah. Thread, to say something out loud about the, situ- the larger situation rather than the the immediate situation, I'm trying to make the connection between what you're feeling and going through in the moment, and how it's connecting to a larger meta narrative, for example, or a larger issue like race in yeah. the era of Trump, that you're aware of? Is it, is it because you're not aware of it, or is you're avoiding that connection by saying it out loud? It's the, the society I'm living in. This is, you know, the racism that I'm experiencing is a result of the situation. Oh, like, why
2: didn't I write the res- racism that I'm experiencing is the result of this? Yeah. Because that's okay. dull.
3: Okay. All
2: right. Because <laughs> that's, those are, those are words that don't mean anything to anyone anymore. Like, if you... When you, when you repackage all of those arguments back into those words, there are people whose brains will turn off left and right and center, which is not to say that those words don't have a value in discourse. Of course they do. But if you're actually trying to tell people an emotional story, the minute you put those words around it, certain parts of their brain just turn off right and left. It's not that I'm not saying it. I'm saying it. I'm just not saying it in the packaging you're used to seeing it in. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um we have yeah, over here in the red hat. Sorry, are we supposed to stop? No. Okay. Sure. All right. <laughs>
0: Mm -hmm. that i'm not being emotional enough
3: and it feels very gendered Mm -hmm. um and so i'm just curious sort of how you think through that as part of your
2: choice on the page well i did actually so in this book i did have to go back and write about Mm -hmm. the emotion like i did actually have to go back and do that um it was a it was like a it's like a sort of a fever dream and an experiment and i was like this is great and it was like or it's failed um and the, and the person who, um, told me the people that told me that was failing were my two editors, um, Chris Jackson and victory Matsui. And they are, they are a thousand percent on my side and I trust them actually not to give me gendered criticism. They're very smart readers. And they were like, you're not doing this thing. Why? And, um, and I was like, why, why? And I realized it was cause I, I was exhausted by the idea of performing emotion, Would I carry that forward into my life? I think there's a, um, I think, I feel like what I carry forward into my life is that every, like, writing is an iterative art. And I feel like so many people forget that. So meaning, like, photography, like, you take a picture, I don't know, the photographer's going to come and smack me over the head, and they'll be like, you don't know enough about photography. But <laughs> what I mean about about writing is that you write it, and then you rewrite it. And then you rewrite it. And every time you rewrite it, you're getting closer to something. You're trying again and again and again to hit out against something. And you're boxing against it. And I love that. I love that idea. I mean, I'll look at this and that the entire time I was reading to you guys, I was like, should have crossed that sentence out, should have lost that word, should have done that. Like, I'll just I'll edit it until I'm dead. I'll be re editing a single thought that I have. But I love that idea. I love that. That's the process. I love, for example, that writing is this thing where you build an imaginary world. I wrote a book and I think it's a single book, but I give it to you guys and it becomes 25,000 books because everybody reads it differently. Like, I love that idea that you engage with the art in this way, you get closer and farther from it. So, which is to say, I don't lock myself into any rules because I like the idea of I will figure it out when the time comes. I will do whatever the work asks of me. I'll do whatever the work asks of me. That to me is the most alive I feel. Yeah. Do we have...
0: I think we have time for one more.
2: Okay. In the back with the scarf. Yeah. Um, I, I want to say thank you. I was reading the book and actually hearing my parents' accents.
3: Yay! <laughs>
2: Oh yeah, I mean, for a while it made him really self-conscious. Where he would like say something, and he'd be like, "Don't say that. Don't report, like don't write it. Don't do that." And I was like, I don't know. Um, "The way that so the the rules going forward are, I wrote about him when he was six to eight. I also told him he could he could change anything. He could not change anything. He could get rid of anything. He never had to explain why. He didn't have to pinpoint the exact why the feelings. We never had to argue about it. He could just be like, "Mommy, I hate that page, and it's gone." Um... I also wrote about him in a time when a kid is actually just a benevolent alien. He's 11 now and he's like as tall as me and he has a mustache and he has opinions. Um, <laughs> some of them are really unfortunate. Um, and, and because there's a level of complexity now in him, um, I ask him if I'm going to draw something like I came home the other, I came home the other day and all of my jewelry was like everywhere, like all over the house. All my necklaces were everywhere and I was like, what happened? Like what? And he goes, he goes, oh yeah, I was the hype man for the impeachment. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, just put on all your necklaces and I like got my karaoke mic and I was like, here he is, Senator, so and. I was like, what? <laughs> anyway, um, and that was really, it was hilarious to me that he was the hype man and then my husband was like, oh, I didn't send you the video and then, yes, he was in fact standing in front of CNN being like, and here we go. Like, He's a real weirdo, this kid. Anyway, I saw that and I was like, can I please draw this? Can I draw this? Or is this the one that you want? And he was like, yeah, you can draw this one. Um... <laughs> And then there are other ones that, like, uh, that we, like, he said something really funny about sex that I'm not allowed to say out loud, but it was so funny. Um, and, and, like, that when I said, like, please. And he was like, no. Nah. Um, I check it with him now. I also was really careful to tell him because when I was drawing this, I was drawing, um, I was kind of putting stuff out on my Instagram account, um, Good Talk Thanks. And he, and as I was doing that, people were starting to recognize him on the street, which was weird uh, super weird. And, um, and I said to him, you know, you're not, you're much more interesting than the person I drew in this book. Also, I drew you in this moment of your life where you were simpler in your thought, which helped me, which was interesting because it totally tore me up, but you're much more complex now. I think part of what happens when people read this is they want to have a very simple talk about racism If anyone asks you to perform parts of this book, you're allowed to just walk away from them. If anybody wants you to perform, which sounds like a super weird thing to say to a kid, except it's happened at every reading I've taken him to. People are like, oh my God, say the part about, and he's just, and he he was so funny. He was like, I I can walk away without saying anything? And I was like, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to explain why. You can just walk away, and he's like, that's so rude. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, no, but that's, it's rude to ask you to perform a kind of racial innocence. And it's rude to, to want to consume that of you. This is from a genuine moment that we had in our lives. And I'm putting it out there, but you don't have to be the vehicle for somebody else's entertainment about this stuff. Like that's, the book is a container. You're not a container. Yeah. Um, was that, was that the last question? Okay. Thank you guys so much for coming.
3: Thank
4: you so much for having me. Uh, Hey, everyone. I really hope that you'll join us for the next reading, which is February the 12th. (laughs) I should know this. Um, February the 12th at 5 p.m., it's going to be Marcelo Hernandez Castillo, and his um, he is a poet and a wonderful poet, but his new memoir, Children of the Land, has just been released, and it recounts his story growing up in California as an undocumented child of undocumented parents, and it recounts his journey um, through the educational system, and he became the first undocumented student to graduate from the University of Michigan's MFA program in creative writing. He went on to found, uh, with uh, Christopher Soto and Janine Joseph and Javier Samora, the UndocuPoets, which was a collective of undocumented poets whose aim was um, forcing most of the major literary prizes in the United States used to have um, probably not very well known, but used to all have citizenship rules from, like the, from the smallest little book prize all the way up to the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Awards, and the undocumented poets were um, instrumental in having those rules change. So most of those prizes no longer use citizenship rules. So he's kind of an amazing, um, he's an amazing poet, he's an amazing memoirist, and he's a, an amazing literary citizen. So I hope all of you will turn out to hear him on February the 12th. Thanks.